Hey, I'm Tom Power. I'm the host of the show Q with Tom Power. Uh, on the show, we talk to all kinds of uh, actors, writers, painters. I mean, big names you might have heard of. Like we had James L. Brooks talking about The Simpsons, Jada Pinkett Smith talking about Tupac. And on our show, artists go a little deeper than they might go elsewhere. I mean, the guys from Blue Rodeo kind of said that. We only talk about our relationship when we come on this show. <laughs> and we've done it damagingly and we've done it positively. <laughs> Listen to Q with Tom Power wherever you get your podcasts. I figured out if you could build beautiful environments and have world-class food and world-class jazz and a lot of sunlight and a fountain and a lot of clay and a lot of photography and brilliant instructors, you could cure cancer of the human spirit. That's what Manchester Craftsman's Guild and Bidwell Training Center is in real time. This is Arts Educators Save the World, where successful artists and their mentors talk about how arts education transformed their lives. Hey, it's us again. Arts Educator superhero Erica and my trusty sidekick, Alec. We are back. Today's episode is about five years in the making. In 2018, I was the keynote speaker at the National Council on Education for the Ceramic Arts, known as NSICA, in Pittsburgh, which remains the largest live crowd I've ever spoken in front of. Thousands of ceramic artists from around the world who are passionate about making pots and instilling that passion in others. Sitting in the front row, I couldn't help but notice a godfather-like figure— who was sitting stoically while people came to him, shaking his hand, paying their respects. As nervous as I was and as big as the convention hall was, I noticed this happening down in front. After my talk, a man in a suit came to me with a business card and said, come here tomorrow for a tour. Bill would like to meet you and show you around. Now, if you know ceramics and you know Pittsburgh, you probably know exactly who wanted to meet me. I did not, but I could tell this was a great honor and that I had better follow up the next day. When I arrived at the Manchester Bidwell Corporation, I realized I had been given an incredible gift. I got to spend an hour with MacArthur Genius and founder of the International Network of National Centers for Arts and Technology, Bill Strickland, and I got to tour The Mothership, a place for arts education music performance, and career training that embodies everything I have ever believed about the power of the arts to change lives. I wanted to share Bill's story with all of you, and I was eager to hear how a successful artist who came up through the Manchester Craftsman's Guild and who learned from Bill would talk about their own journey. This conversation that you're about to hear between artist and educator Sharif Bey and Bill does not disappoint. My favorite thing about their conversation is how they talk about working with clay as both a functional art form and a representational one. I love the idea that a piece of art can both hold your cereal and have a postmodern aesthetic, neither of which I can produce myself. And now for our podcasty housekeeping of the week. First off, Sharif is coming to us straight from his studio, so you may hear some noise in the background. It's just the sound of life and art, or art imitating life, or them working together. Also, you will hear Sharif and Bill talk about Frank Ross. Frank Ross was one of Bill's teachers back during his time as a student at Oliver High School, the public school in Pittsburgh where Bill was a student. 
So without further ado, the great Sharif Bey and Bill Strickland. Sharif Bey is an artist, ceramicist, and professor. He creates functional pottery as well as ceramics and mixed-media sculpture. His work is focused on the visual heritage of Africa, Oceania, and contemporary African-American culture. He also has an impressive academic pedigree. He holds a BFA from Slippery Rock University, an MFA from UNC Greensboro, and, close to my heart, a PhD in art education from Penn State University. He also studied sculpture at the Academy of Fine Arts and Design in Bratislava, Slovakia, shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union. And he's currently an associate professor of art at Syracuse University. His work has been featured at museums across the U.S. and in Canada, including the Renwick Gallery at the Smithsonian American Art Museum, the Carnegie Museum of Art, and a local favorite of mine, the Kohler Arts Center in Sheboygan, Wisconsin. He's won multiple awards for his work, including the United States Artist Fellowship and a Fulbright Scholarship. Most relevant to our conversation today, we're going to take it way back to where he came up through an apprenticeship at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild in Pittsburgh. Sharif, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It, it really is an honor to be here. And if I were to take it away to endeavor to introduce Bill Strickland without a succinct paragraph or two, I would have to do it anecdotally. Because when I was a, a kid at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, at first I started at this center. This is the information I was working with at the time. There's a center where you can do ceramics. What I didn't know historically is it was shortly after Bill successfully led this capital campaign to build this amazing new building. And it was just maybe a year or so old Programmatically, it was in its formative stages. I later learned that Bill was essentially running around trying to keep the lights on and keep people paid and doing these bigger and more important things. I didn't know he had any experience in ceramics. In fact, my first time seeing Bill, he was dressed just like he is now, more or less, with a, a suit on, probably Brooks Brothers, and he was poking around in the ceramics studio. And I thought he was one of the Bidwell training center administrators uh, who was taking a continuing education class <laughs> in ceramics. Because he would pop in randomly at lunchtime and, you know, in the afternoon, you know, and peek in the kiln and, you know, checking on his stuff and wondering what's going on. And I didn't get it because no one really gave me any information about the fact that he was, you know, the founder of this center. In fact, it was kind of peculiar to me. Like, who's this guy? He's sure is comfortable around here for a continuing ed student, <laughs> you know? And I don't think I ever told you that, Bill, but I, I had no idea. And as I kind of grew along with the place, back then, Bill was kind of like the school principal from my perspective. That was kind of my framework for understanding him is that he was doing the big important things out in the world to kind of keep things together. One thing that I'll also say that, that I learned, and we'll probably get into these two things a little bit more, the idea of what we consider a grassroots institution. In fact, I just had a, this very conversation with my wife and how we have to look from within and look for without as we evolve and work to sustain institutions as the world changes around them. That's correct. You know, one of the things that I, I really later took with me as I reflect on 30, I don't know how many years with the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, 
is that there is an acute awareness that curriculum is a lie. And when we lose sight of that, we lose sight of a lot of things. And I think that that was what, what it was about the Manchester Craftsman's Guild that really resonated with me, especially as it compared to my experience as a high school student. So I was like asking, what is it about this place that makes me want to hang out here? And what is it about school that, that makes me dread it? Right. And when I say that it's alive, I mean, we have lots of metaphors there that we use, whether it's the flowers or the fountain or the food or the sunlight. And those are literal metaphors. But then there are some very practical metaphors like tomorrow is promised to no one or that wonderful philanthropic relationship you have may not be here forever. Or the person who is at the helm of this program could potentially get another job and leave tomorrow. So how do we position ourselves to succeed in spite of the inevitability of change? Mm. So to me, that is also a really critical component of curriculum. If we're looking at, we're in school in 1992 and we're working with books from the 70s and we're listening to, to people who are 65, you know, how are we being prepared for tomorrow? Good point. So for better or for worse, because I think the good is with the bad when it comes to curriculum. There was always something happening there. We were always trying new things and meeting new people and working with new materials and embarking on new experiences and inviting new people to come in. You know, that's that's what life is kind of about, a perpetual negotiation. There's a famous quote that I like to use in reference to this introduction, and I believe it's attributed to Mark Twain. And he says, when I became an adult, suddenly I realized my parents were geniuses. Mm. So having lived this curriculum, Literally, you know, it gave me so much to reflect on as a teacher, as an artist and as a citizen. I didn't have a whole lot of interface with Bill, but when I kind of got to know him as an adult and kind of discovered that these things were not circumstantial, they were by design. And it contributed to this epiphany where it's like, okay, no wonder he hasn't got that MacArthur. (laughs) This is not like, oh, yeah, by the way, we just happened to set this on the desk. We just happened to decide that they're worth more than tater tots so we can give them some Chilean sea bass. You know, these things were not circumstantial. I think it's, it's really important. And for that matter, I would venture to say that the Manchester Craftsman's Guild or the Bill Strickland Institute for Arts and Technology, is it today? Well, it's called the William E. Strickland something or other. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) But God forbid it's the same institution it was in 88. It's not because we're growing with our relationships and we're engaging the world as it turns. And that's what curriculum should be. That's correct. Well put. I hope that's better than what Wikipedia wrote about. (laughs) (laughs) So much more than Wikipedia. And I I love that your introduction to Bill is really an introduction to his work and how it sets the stage for your life and the lives of so many others. He is author of the book, Make the Impossible Possible, One Man's Crusade to Inspire Others to Dream Bigger and Achieve the Extraordinary. He has been on the boards of the National Endowment for the Arts, the Mellon Financial Corporation, and the University of Pittsburgh. So, Bill, what's your first memory of Sharif? My first memory of Sharif is a young man, shy, careful, and he impressed me with his eyesight. He was very intense. I remember one of the guys saying, I don't know if he's getting clay, but I said, well, forget that. If he shows up, keep giving him clay. 
and we'll see what happens. And that was my original assessment. This young man was somehow interested in what we were talking about. I wasn't sure what he was going to do with it, but I said, as long as he keeps coming, our job is to keep giving him clay. And he did keep coming. And after a while, I saw him on the potter's wheel, and he was making some decent-looking vessels. And that gave me the hint that he had taken the bait. It was just really a question now setting the hook so he couldn't get away. And that metaphor was really about surrounding young people like Sharif with the rest of the story, which was the center itself and the faculty and the music and so on. Because the reason I won the MacArthur, in my opinion, because you don't apply for this thing, they have people around the country who kind of look for people like me, I guess. So I figured out through bits and pieces that they came to the conclusion I was a genius because I figured out the cure for cancer of the human spirit. That's what Manchester Craftsman's Guild and Bidwell Training Center is in real time. That I figured out if you could build beautiful environments and have world-class food and world-class jazz and a lot of sunlight and a fountain and a lot of clay and a lot of photography and brilliant instructors, you could cure cancer of the human spirit. That's what I figured out. And if I can kind of maybe unpack a little bit of that impression, again, I was 14 years old coming into the Manchester Craftsman's Guild. Unlike a lot of kids you know, from that part of town, I had a, a strong family support, but there was this long history in my family, of local 154 Boilermaker Union, which is kind of connected to the Steel City post-industrial Pittsburgh remnants in that you know, my father had an eighth grade education, but was able to sustain his family, he and all his brothers, by primarily all joining the same union. They were able to, to sustain themselves with these jobs, but none of them were happy in terms of having a sense of fulfillment and feeling a sense of purpose until, you know, this second generation, excuse me, fourth generation in the family, but started to make other choices with regards to school. But I have a lot of people in my family who were talented in the arts who did not have a viable path in front of them as to how they might use the arts in any way to leverage a sustainable profession. So one of the things that I saw, and the first thing I want to add, it's kind of funny. He mentioned photography. That was the thriving program. Despite ceramics being Bill's thing, kids in the 90s in Pittsburgh were, were really gravitating by and large to the photography program. And this is, of course pre-selfie. So what we'd have a lot is a lot of yeah. young pretty girls who wanted to be models and a lot of young hip guys who claimed to be photographers, right? right. So you get the attention from the pretty, pretty girls, you know, let's go to the studio and I can give you a contact and validate you with hundreds of pictures of you thinking you're cute, right? So I wasn't into photography, but I was into all the pretty girls who jumped on the bus to go to the Manchester Craftsman's Guild. I had had some arts experience, but when I went down there, you know, Bill made this comment about setting the hook. I had no idea what I was getting into. It's a very different landscape compared to, you know, a conventional school. And as a result, there are different kinds of relationships fostered through that ever-changing landscape. So when I say that, we're talking about like intergenerational, you know, diversity of class, generation, race, you know, here I am, you know, a couple of months into this place and 
you know, my studio component, my studio community involved art teachers pursuing renewal credits through the continuing ed class, a lot of hobbyists, a lot of retirees. You know, when I set the stage for the uh, continuing ed class that I would I would stay after, I would basically stay for the entire youth program. And then on the evenings, they would have six to nine twice a week continuing ed. So then it's uh, it's full of predominantly old white ladies listening to NPR <laughs> and, work, and, and working on the pottery wheel. After a, a year or so of that, that was my crew, right? <laughs> so my crew are 73-year-old white ladies and Pittsburgh public school art teachers pursuing their renewal credits. Bill, were the 73-year-old white ladies part of the hook or was that just like an extra bonus? <laughs> no, they came here anyway. I was just kind of doing my thing, and they wandered in off the street, at, you know, curious as to what I was up to, I guess. And I said, well, everybody's welcome. If you're interested in clay, I, we can help you out. If you're not interested, keep walking because there's a photography studio right next door. It really was and continues to be a voluntary experience. I'm not trying to get anybody to come here that if they don't want to come here. But if they do decide to come here, I wanted to make it a pleasant, exciting experience for the white ladies and for the black kids and for the Jewish kids and for the Asian kids that it didn't matter to me where they came from. What mattered to me is where they were going and how they, how are they going to get there. And if I can add to that, I mean, just the diversity of that experience. I'm working on the wheel and I'm working with kids who had similar social economic backgrounds to me, but there are also kids there who are Ivy League bound. Correct. And then, you know, we had a unique relationship and I can't speak to now because, you know, I'm only speaking to the formative years of the program with the Pittsburgh arts community and with the regional ceramics community. You know, when we had an event there, we were hosting visiting artists and doing workshops and things like that. It brought college professors and college students from all the neighboring universities, some coming from Erie, Pennsylvania, and Indiana University of Pennsylvania. So in addition to having this kind of network of retirees and school teachers, by the time I graduated from high school, I had kind of tapped into a pretty substantial network of ceramic artists from across the country. Right. And most certainly, all of the ceramic professors in that region of Pennsylvania, I was on first name basis with mm. by the time I graduated. Between my commitment to the institution and, and I'm just kind of knowing me as the kid in the corner on the wheel. But again, as I kind of branched out in this particular field, there was always someone who I knew. In fact, Bill, I was a college professor in Winston-Salem a year or two out of my PhD and I was writing for uh, an NEA grant and I called Washington to ask the question. And they said, Sharif Bay, Manchester Craftsman's Guild, when I introduced myself. Right. <laughs> you know, the idea that the people in Washington connected my name immediately to Bill's and that currency in itself is substantial. I couldn't agree more. And Bill, how did you build all of that into your way of thinking about what this place was for for young people? In other words, you know, Sharif has talked really eloquently about this idea of the curriculum being alive, which is kind of a process. But how did you get to that place of understanding that these sort of social capital pieces were a core part of what it meant to do arts education? Trial and error. 
I can't tell you that I had this figured out in one vision. It was trial and error. You try A, you try B, you try C, then you go back to A-1 and you go back to B-1 till you get it right. And so that's basically what I did. That if the kids didn't like wheel throwing, maybe they would like hand building. So I made sure I had adequate enough equipment. If they were interested in hand building, we had that covered too. The idea was to be super equipped, have functioning equipment that worked 24-7. I wanted to run this program and the people who taught in the program as a military operation so that things were functioning at a high degree of success all the time. Unfortunately, in the public school system, they did not adopt that philosophy. A lot of the times there was not enough clay. I remember times we had to supply clay to the public school system so that the kids could have a comparable experience in that school. Half the time the equipment didn't work, if there was equipment at all. And so I said, we're going to become a place where the equipment works, the faculty is engaged, there's more than enough clay to go around. In fact, we were going through 25 tons of clay every year. I wanted to build something ultimately where the kids said, these people are for real, they are demanding excellence, and we want to live up to that expectation. It was an environment mm. that we ultimately created. I wanted to add, I mean, just again, having lived that without knowing what it was all about, my first day at the Manchester Craftsman's Guild, I, I remember distinctly, when I was there, it was almost kind of the best kept secret, especially in ceramics. It was only a, a handful of students. But they gave me more clay the first day that I was there than I had worked with the entire time from middle school all the way to high school because I was an art student. They gave me 30, 40 pounds and said, I don't remember, it was a very open-ended prompt. But, you know, we're wedging this clay and, and immediately I knew I can do something there because of the immediate investment. But I also want to kind of add this other kind of anecdotal background to what Bill is just saying. I was brought in as a consultant a couple of years ago to help shape or redesign this art education doctoral program. One of the first things I told them is that there is no getting it right. So we're not going to sit down and hammer out this program and it be forevermore, right? So let's accept first that this is part of a continuum, that we're going to revisit this. We're going to fail inevitably. We're going to throw some things away. We're going to revise certain aspects of it. That answers the question about what it means to be alive is to accept the vulnerability of it, right? There's something very patriarchal about saying I'm right because I'm right and I'm your father, and even when I'm wrong, I'm right because I'm your father and we're going to do it wrong no matter what. And I'll never admit that I ever made a mistake because I'm in charge. And I think that in some ways there are models out there that exist because they've existed. And people aren't willing to accept the vulnerability necessary to say, we might want to reconsider this. Or I don't think this works this way. Or why don't we try it this way? And, and, and they even feel that somehow the students won't be receptive to us accepting that. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, yeah, you're not, you're not so confident in telling me that you know everything, then, then I must not be talking to an authority here. 
So I think that there's there's something genius in allowing for that fluidity. So for me as a student, like we were literally always, you know, they were like almost like mixers. Like, let's go down here and try this. You know, we, we did this project, I remember, at Market Square. It was a collaborative project with the homeless. I, I'll never forget. We took all this terracotta down to Market Square. And I don't know if you guys know much Market Square, of course, because this is you know, national. But this back then was kind of an area that had a lot of homeless people in it. And it was kind of a, an outreach program. But I still think that despite the fact that it, you know, it didn't give these folks money, it didn't give these folks food, but they got to see something in this space that they'd never seen before or will never see after. We were doing this giant terracotta relief mural with kids and passersby you know, in the middle of the city. It definitely sparked a lot of curiosity. Some people thought it was chocolate. <laughs> You know, but the idea of of suddenly from from a curricular standpoint for us to suddenly be engaging people, unsuspecting people in unsuspecting spaces was a very enriching kind of a social experiment. You know, this was just something we did one afternoon. So I was set at 15. I knew exactly what I wanted to be when I grew up when I was 15. And I had countless examples of how to get there by way of my instruction, not to mention a network of support that extended to the other end of the country. Mm. Bill, what does that make you think of when you hear Sharif say, it is essentially because of the environment that you designed that I knew that my pathway to being an artist, to living my passion, was what I learned from being at Manchester Craftsman's Guild? Well, what I did was replicate my experience with Frank Ross and make it into a center because I had that experience with my teacher. Frank Ross used to bring in jazz albums. Why do we have a music hall? Because I fell in love with jazz at Oliver High School in the art room. Why do we have photography? Because Frank said, you got to get into the Three Rivers Arts Festival and you got to take pictures of your stuff to get there. So I developed an interest in photography. He said, I'm going to give you an A for the class, so forget the grade. You got an A. Now go out and do something interesting. So I bought a camera at the pawn shop down on East Ohio Street, which Sharif knows about, and I went out and took pictures of buildings, one of which was St. Vincent's Monastery. And I was fascinated by the monks' residence, and I got to talking to the monks between the Gregorian chants and all that, and I said, this is a beautiful space. Who did this space? They said, oh, a guy named Tassel Katsell is a Pittsburgh artist and architect. So I called him up. Many years later, two years later, I called him up and said, I want to build this center in Pittsburgh. I, I don't have any money, but I'm fascinated with your architecture. And you remind me of a visit I had with my public school teacher, Mr. Ross, who took us to see Falling Water. Mm. And... Tasso said, with a big smile on his face, come behind my desk and I want to show you something. So I go behind the guy's desk, and there he is with Frank Lloyd Wright with his arms around Tasso. Mm. And I said, bingo, I got it. And so I hired Tasso to build the Manchester Bidwell Center. Frank Ross's experience translated, in effect, into planting that seed in me, and I understood why the environment was so important I went to see Falling Water, and I said, wow, this is a crazy idea. 
I spend time trying to keep the water out of my house. This guy's got a creek right, 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 right through the middle of the place. That's an interesting way of looking at water. The concept was the environment can be your friend. It does not have to be your enemy. And the other thing that I noticed at Frank Lloyd Wright's house was the light. The place was enveloped in light, even on a gray day. And I said, that is part of the equation. So what I did was I created a chemical equation. Light, sunshine, flowers, food, architecture, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that is what I built. And that was called Manchester Craftsman's Guild. And Sharif is an outstanding example of the fact that I was right. <laughs> there are others. <laughs> Every now and then, we're going to step away from our interviews so that Erica can reflect on the conversation. This week, I asked Erica to talk about something from her book, which was itself the inspiration for this podcast, How the Arts Can Save Education. Here we go. In your book, you talk about learning ecologies, places for learning that aren't necessarily school buildings. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Right. So often when we think about learning, we think about school. And that is because that is the primary mechanism we have for delivering content and skills. And there are so many spaces where powerful learning happens that aren't schools because, in many ways, the arts have been excluded from schooling. Rich organizations and practices and spaces have grown up to take the place of school-based learning in and through the arts. And in the book, I describe how schools can partner with these spaces to create wraparound learning ecologies for students so that they can have access to all that these organizations provide without having to have their lives segmented. If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. When did you know you were right with Sharif? You sort of mentioned that you noticed him on the wheel and knew that you kind of had him, but you wanted to get the hook. When did you go like, oh, yeah, yeah, this guy? I think really when he got into Slippery Rock, I said, the guy's on his way. The question now is how far can he go? He's got this dialed in, man. So I really became an observer because I said, this guy's on a journey, and I think he's going places. I'm going to step back and watch this happen, mm. which is exactly what I did. Mm. It's obviously been breathtaking. I had the presence of mind once Sharif got to be Sharif Bay, Dr. Bay. I said, I better buy one of these guys' pieces before I can afford it. <laughs> and I did, and Sharif reminded me of that. And he continues to remind me of that every time I see him. I said, well, you should have sharpened your pencil, man. What can I tell you? Welcome to the world of business. I got him at the right <laughs> yeah. time. 
He got in early in the market for sure. What's the piece? <laughs> it's a necklace that we put in our place in Costa Rica. So, Sharif, the only way you're going to see that piece is you got to come to Costa Rica. <laughs> yeah, I do a lot of adornment-inspired sculptures, and some of them are public commissions. Many of them are in museums around the country and, and actually internationally. This, this gets kind of touchy-feely in, in a certain sense, but I was a very ambitious kid who was fortunate to have a lot of resources and a lot of people believing in me. I think that certainly my affiliation, because again, once I got connected to the Manchester Craftsman's Guild and essentially earned this reputation as uh, the kid who was there until they cut the lights out, there were a lot of people rooting for me. So my dissertation research was largely about, you know, examining comparable relationships over history mm. and reflecting on the Manchester Craftsman's Guild. But specifically, this kind of mentor, mentee, the studio environment, the idea that your teacher has a visible studio practice, the idea that you get personal insights into who that person is as a maker, as a citizen. And it's not just this person who gives you instruction. It's not just this person who stands in front of the board. Our art teachers were kind of like monitors in a sense because we didn't make art with them. They would give us an assignment. They might demonstrate. Then they go back to their teacher's desk. And at that point, it's really a question of management and usually a management of materials and behaviors. But when we're working within a community, you know, I knew I wasn't peers, you know, but my teachers were mostly 10 and 15 years older than I was. So it wasn't like school. They had ambitions, they had aspirations, and they had motivations in the studio as well. So I was able to kind of see that aspect of the curriculum unfold in other people, mm. is what I'm trying to say. I'd like to ask a question. This is not something that I think listeners hear a lot about. Can, can you both talk to us a little bit about clay, about the work and what it means to you? I'd, I'd love to start with, with Bill. Just this is not an art form that a lot of people turn on a podcast and hear much about. And I would just love to hear about what it means for you, both for yourself and the students throughout your life. Well, I want to make functional pots that are very good. In fact, exceptionally good, and I want to give them all away to people that I care about. And Warren McKenzie said he grew with the pots that he made in his home. They became a part of his life. And so I said, well, since I'm now at the point where I don't have to make pots to live, I can make pots to give them away to people that I love. So that's what I'm doing. But mm. since people, I'm, you know, I got this Lifetime Achievement Award from Inseek and all this stuff. And people are assuming that my pots are as good as the award I got from Inseeka. <laughs> and so I have to come up with my A game, man, because I'm hanging out with Sharif Bay and all these people, and you can't come up with your B game. you got to come with your A game. In fact, Jim Turnbull, who Sharif knows, has invited me to join Sharif in some museum in New York. Everson Museum. Wes Mills is in it. Frank Ross is in it. I've been elected in it, and Sharif Bay has been elected in it. If I'm going to be associated with the memory of Frank Ross and the present association with <laughs> Sharif Bay, I can't come up short. So I will be doing something <laughs> in the functional space. I'm not a sculptor. I'm a functional potter. And that's how I want to live, and that's how I want to die. Making good pots, 
for people who love these pieces and I can give them away in that spirit. That's my game. And that's what I figured out what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Well, it's funny. I have like maybe three different ways I could respond to that uh, question. I like at present, I have this mid-career retrospective exhibition here at the Everson Museum. With Clay, I make art with a capital A in that there's a very big difference. And I talk to people about this. I used to have a pottery sale every summer in my front yard. And you could buy $30 coffee mugs <laughs> and $15 cereal bowls. You know, comparing that to me having a gallery exhibition in Chelsea or a museum opening at the Smithsonian in D.C., there's such a broad range of expressions in clay. For that matter, there's such a broad range of how we value and engage clay objects. So from the, the humble cereal bowl, Warren McKenzie's, despite having work in museums, he was very much about celebrating the humble object Correct. that we use, the utilitarian object. So this exhibition I have puts those it's 110 pieces, and there are about 65 pots. But then again, there's work that is highly valued, let's just say that. And then there are things that are relatively expendable because you can make them you know, as part of a stream of consciousness. But from an educational perspective, to talk like the, the why clay question is a question I entertained all the time. But the first thing that makes clay powerfully unique is it is literally transformative, right? We're watching these particles interlock and hold shape. But the thing about it is it happens in real time. You also know that the Manchester Craftsman's Guild has a culinary program. So the only thing that I can compare it to in that sense mm is cooking. Because we have culture, we have physics, we have science, we have serendipity, we have self and creative expression. But, you know, there is that immediacy. And with that immediacy, kind of like a cooking show, right? We can do the Julia Childs thing right in front of you. And that's what makes it powerful. So when I talked about these people, I use the term importing narratives, but we can also import me doing what I do in my way in real time. I can actually show you what I do. We can't really do that for most painters, right? They have, they have the expression, watching paint dry, right? <laughs> that expression exists for a reason. But you could literally watch Bill and I throw side by side, and you can take note to what we do different, what we do is the same, what is fundamentally similar, the converging and diverging relationships to how we were taught and how we approach clay and vice versa. So to me, there are literally opportunities where people stage these events to do their thing. There's clay Olympics, literally. I've actually demonstrated in ballrooms with giant screens behind me <laughs> and audio systems like I'm in a concert hall. So to me, the idea that you can literally showcase what you do, you know, I'm a ceramics teacher, so I'm, I'm always showing them, it's almost like parlor tricks sometimes, because I don't want them to just know what I know. I want them to see that there's an extensive repertoire. I can endeavor to make a Bill Strickland pot in front of them, you know? <laughs> I can't say that about you. There is no way I'm going to do that, man. I'll stay on my lane, thank you very much. <laughs> my goal is to merge my clay with music. I want my clay to be a song. I, I figured it out because we, one, have a music hall, of course, but... When I work in the studio, I have jazz on, 
And I oftentimes, when I'm despondent, I put on the music and sit at the wheel. And I said, what I want to do is to make work that sings so that when you see my work in your home, it brightens your day and it becomes lyrical. And I've got it dialed in and that's where I'm headed with Clay. Well, it's funny too, because you you said something that resonates with me. You said, you know, I want to be able to give pots away. The challenge that I'm having right now is I'm always having people tell me what I'm worth. Mm. And I want to get back to that mentality of that 15-year-old kid who was so eager to put what I had in someone else's hand. Yes, sir. Got it. Well, since I'm on the lecture circuit, I've made a lot of friends. So I'm not going to be out of friends to make pots for anytime (laughs) soon. So I'll give them all pot. So I got something to do when I get up in the morning. So to speak. I just wanted to share with y'all kind of a an aha I had as you were talking about the importance of process as art, because that's something that I heard in your responses, right? Which is that what is special about art making is both the material and the product that's created, but as you said, Sharif, the liveness of working with the material as art making and as a performing artist that resonates so much with me, right? And as an improviser, in many ways, all we have is process. And we invite audiences in explicitly, frankly, to only watch process. In some ways, the performance is the product, but in many ways, what we're including them in is this very intimate conversation about process, right? Watch us try to make a funny right here in front of you, and you get a window into how we work. And both of your love for failure, in many ways, those experiences can be spectacular failures, and that's actually part of the art making. I I wanted to share that because I think this insight that process, in art making, process is the art making, that applies to learning, where learning is in process as well as in product. And that failure, however we characterize that, is an integral part of art making, of process, of learning. Correct. I just wanted to raise that up because I heard that in a slightly different way in both of what you're saying. And that resonates very much with me in my own Mm -hmm. performing arts processes. That's very well put. Indeed. Final thoughts, either of you, before we let you go back to your regularly scheduled days? Well, I'll go first on this one. One of the things I learned is that in order to sustain yourself spiritually, you have to surround yourself with people who can supply you with emotional oxygen, like this conversation we just had for 45 minutes. This is oxygen. And I figured out how to surround myself with people who provide this level of medicine. And I believe, particularly in these troubled times, those of us who are interested in surviving may have to find a way to survive because we are in deep trouble. And so I believe that the value of doing something like this, hopefully, is it brings us more closely together than we were before we Mm. started this recording. Mm. Mm keeping our spirits alive such that we can can provide that emotional oxygen 
is critical to our survival. That's correct. So one of the things that I preach and try to model as I go about the world is, again, how do we sustain our spirits? How do we continue to feed ourselves and how do we cultivate our spirits such that we can cultivate the good in others? Well put. Oh, I love listening to them. It's so inspiring to me to hear them talk about their own arts processes and how those processes are related to our own humanity. And in terms of arts education, it's wonderful to get the chance to witness the mutual admiration society that is their relationship. And with that, three things for you, Alec. Let's do it. Because we definitely don't need additional thoughts from me. So let's do it. Give me three presents that you wish someone would buy you. I would like a autographed baseball bat from Cody Bellinger. One. I would like uh, all expense paid ticket, travel, hotel, everything to Springfield, Illinois to do a full Abraham Lincoln tour, his home, where he's buried. Give me one of those. Two. Oh, and another. I thought I was done. Third, I would love a dog and someone to completely take care of it. So all I get to do is squishy his little face. Three things. Wait, but wait, we're not done. We have three more things, Erica. Can you tell us? Can you just, I'm just thinking of a good question here. Can you tell us three ways that our listeners can connect with the show? Let me think. Well, if you want to be a part of our journey and you have questions, comments, or if you know someone who would make a great guest on our show, write to us at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. That's one. You can use the handy-dandy interview guide on our website to talk to your own mentor about the ways they've changed your life through the arts. That is two. And if you use our handy-dandy interview guide and you want to send us your favorite two-minute clip of the interview you did, we will do our best to include it in the show. To learn more, go to artseducatorspodcast.com slash contact. Three things. Arts Educators Save the World is hosted by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and produced and co-hosted by me, Alec Lev. Our executive producer is Doug Matica, and our audio producer is Justin Asher. We are also executive produced by the fantastic group at Story Pirate Studios, Lee Overtree, Benjamin Salka, and Amy Fiore. Original music is by Dan Lipton, and our artwork is by Lyra Evans. Check out our website, designed by Cole Locasio, at www.artseducatorspodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at Arts Educators. Yes, somehow that wasn't taken yet. And on Instagram at Arts Educators Podcast. Write to us with your questions and comments at contact at artseducatorspodcast.com. And wherever you're listening, please remember to subscribe, rate, and review. It really helps the show. We are proud to be sponsored in part by the Wallace Foundation, the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and the Gibb Faculty Fellowship. Arts Educators Save the World was created by Erica Rosenfeld-Halverson and Alec Lett.
If you're a fan of Real Housewives, Summer House, Vanderpump Rules, or any other shows on Bravo, you know that being a Bravo fan is basically a full-time job. On the Mention It All podcast, presented by Betches Media, I, Dylan Hafer, am keeping you up to date on all things Bravo. Plus, you'll get to hear some of your favorite Bravo celebrities and media personalities mention it all about what happens on and off camera. Search for Mention It All on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.